Hey girl, I'm your host Diana, and this is Our Space, a podcast where we discuss the health and well-being of Black women with Black women. Every month we'll be sitting down with Black women in the healthcare and public health field to discuss health issues and relevant topics in our community. In this episode, we're going to be talking about mental health. What you're about to hear is an unedited and unfiltered conversation between me, my therapist, and the embedded psychologist at Ohio University. Okay, take five. Let's try it again. Okay. (laughs) We're joined today by Drs. Karen McGiven and Kristen Nichols. Dr. McGiven is the CEO and founder of Live Free Coaching and Counseling Services, an assistant professor of clinical counseling at Weinbrenner Theological Seminary in Findlay, Ohio. She's a licensed professional counselor in both Jamaica and Ohio, a nationally certified counselor, and a certified life coach specializing in happiness coaching. Dr. Nichols is a psychologist and embedded clinician with Ohio University's Division of Diversity and Inclusion. She holds a doctorate in clinical psychology from an APA accredited program in Miami, Florida, and a master's degree in organizational management and leadership from Springfield College in Boston, Massachusetts. Kristen is also in the process of opening her own private practice here in Athens, Ohio. First, I would like to thank both of you so much for joining us today. And I can't wait to hear what you both have to say about the topics that we're going to discuss. Thanks for having me, Danny. Yes. So before we get started, um, before we started recording today, Kristen shared a wonderful quote with me that I would love if she could read. Sure. Yeah, this is a quote from a Ghanaian American author, um, Nana Am Dankwa. And it says that mental illness that affects white men is often characterized as a sign of genius. White women who suffer from mental illness are depicted as spoiled or just plain hysterical. Black men are demonized and pathologized. Black women are certainly not seen as geniuses or even labeled as hysterical or pathological. When a black woman suffers from a mental disorder, we are labeled as weak and weakness in black women is intolerable. I think that's really powerful. And I think it says so much about not only what we're going to discuss today, but just in general, I think that rings very, very true. Um, That kind of segues into the first question that I even wanted to ask you both. Um, Like you mentioned about black women being perceived as weak and things of that nature when it comes to us being mentally ill or struggling with anything really, Um, I know something that we hear a lot about is the strong black woman stereotype, which often is weaponized and used against us in a lot of ways. And the angry black woman stereotype, which I think kind of goes into talking about emotions and things like that. Anytime a black woman shows any sort of emotion or anything, really, we instantly are, oh, she's angry. Oh, she's just angry. What kind of toll do you think that takes on our mental health? Well, I'll start. Um, Defensiveness. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, Defensiveness in normal language. People would hear that word and think, okay, it's reasonable if you feel like you're being attacked. But when you you live in a society, if if anyone, all of us fall into the category of Black women living in this society, and if we know that the society perceives us a certain way, 
we are automatically put on the defensive. We're not, we don't even have to hear it said to us. We just assume that the persons that we're interacting with are thinking those ways, especially if it's someone outside of our culture group. And so you automatically want to prove something. And that defensiveness is not a comfortable place to be within a group. People don't like that. They don't respond well to defensiveness. It's not really a healthy emotion or way of being. And so we will put forward more protectiveness about ourselves than is necessary. It's just like you're going in on the defensive, on the offensive sometimes to prove that what you're thinking about me is not true. And then what happens is we come across even more so like the stereotype that's being perpetuated. But all of that is happening in the sub subconscious because it feels so unfair. It feels unfair that anybody would want to treat us differently from anybody else because of how we look, because of our color, because of our, our, our gender. And so that perpetuates. And if nobody brings it to our attention, I could live my whole life. You two could live your whole lives on the defensive and sometimes offensive because you know how you're perceived. I think that's a great point, Dr. McGibbon. And I, I would like to add to that by contributing um, and speaking to another aspect of what Diana brought up. Um, is that dichotomous representation of the Black woman, either as being the sofa woman or somehow being angry, right? So the, those two things you often see Black women depicted as. And when she is depicted as a superwoman, it's a positive compliment. And therefore, if you're a superwoman, you're doing it all, you know, um, while that might be complimentary, you're not being able to be your authentic self, mm. all right? And so I wonder how that, how that um, goes along with um, being able to say no. How does that go? How does it impact family life? How does that impact well-being? Taking on too much, right? And that's something I can definitely say I've experienced, right? So if you're perceived in that way and you're complimented or that identity is reinforced, you're least likely to take care of your general well-being and self-care so self-care maybe doesn't look as good right because you're doing doing a lot taking on a lot and you know i could personally say that i grew up seeing my mother being the black superwoman um handling um home work and uh friendships and everything and being uh, you know someone um who supported a lot of people in the community and then the other piece of it is like if you're not the superwoman you're often depicted as um you know, either sexualized in some way, being lazy, loud, or ghetto. One of those things, which are, you know, definitely not um, complimentary. And that too impacts our mental health and well-being. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, I think, you know, it's not easy navigating mm -hmm. yourself as a, a Black woman, um, in, in, and then especially in very white spaces as well. Mm -hmm. Can I just add to that, Doctor? Sure. Thank you so much for breaking that down the way you did. Also, just even knowing that the super superwoman, strong woman, is what is expected of you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But knowing, particularly in the black culture, mental health issues aren't embraced and understood. Mm -hmm. 
They're not, um, you know, nobody will look on it on you as a superwoman, strong woman and say, oh, but, you know, have you been practicing self-care? Maybe you need to take something off. You seem a little bit frazzled. Nobody's going to say that. They're Mm -hmm. looking to you to continue the the strong woman behavior because you they benefit from you pushing yourself that hard. People around you look to you. They they feel they feel secure because they know that no matter what goes wrong, yes, I know mom is going to keep it together. No matter if there's a crisis, she's going to, but then you have to go into the background, into your shower, cry Mm -hmm. in the shower. Don't let anybody know that you're crying because they will become afraid. If you're breaking down, what's going to happen to them? And then where do you go? Because people in the black community, don't advertise oh i have a therapist <laughs> they don't right. say why don't you talk to my therapist uh-huh. they expect you to just find a way out of it so let's mention the uh mental mental health challenges that women in those stereotypes who are stereotyped that way live through constantly depression and anxiety let's just say that is such a common Thing, and let's just say which one is the most common, please. Depression. That people, women who are in those categories placed by society are just living with. They may, I remember growing up, you know, women like that, you just call them miserable. She miserable, you see? Um, <laughs> we know what that meant. She was unhappy, but nobody's going to say, you seem sad, you seem you know, like you need to talk to someone. They're just going to call you miserable. And so she stay, she's just miserable. She's depressed. And if she's not depressed, she's angry. She's angry that she feels the way she does and she doesn't know where to turn because everybody's looking to her. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Karen. Not only have you perfectly set me up, for the next question but i just want to everything that y'all are saying i wish people listening to this would could see me recording right now and emphatically shaking my head (laughs) y'all are really getting to the heart of everything that i kind of want to talk about today um back to the point that you just made specifically both of you touched on self-care and that's kind of something i wanted to speak on as well when you are occupying a space where people are not concerned about your well-being and not advocating for your well-being what does or what tips can you offer to advocate for yourself? What does self-care look like when you're in a space when where no one thinks that you're doing bad, when no one thinks that you're suffering with depression or anxiety or even just checking on you? What does self-care look like and what can we do as Black women to advocate for our own self-care? I think being able to say no, and I, I kind of uh, touched on that a little bit earlier, but I think it's that's something as, you know, older now and wiser I've come to value and appreciate the mm-hmm. simple thing of saying no. So saying something like thank you for thinking about me mm-hmm. and I'm not able to really fully complete this task in the way that you would entrust me with it. Can I can you ask someone else or I can suggest someone else or can you come back with me within this a month? Setting healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. So being able to say no setting boundaries for yourself and knowing that 
saying no or, or creating healthy boundaries doesn't mean that you're weak. It doesn't mean that you can't. It means that you are equipping yourself with um, the strength, right, to be able to do future things. You're investing. That's what I'm looking for. You're mm-hmm. investing in your well-being. It's an investment in yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not a sign of weakness. And, um, you know, like I, I, we both touched, Dr. McGivens and I, about just the upbringing, you know, and growing up and seeing your mother kind of take on and doing it all. We, we weren't modeled how to really say no or how mm-hmm. to, you know, um, deal with, um, you know, uh, creating healthy boundaries. And, and, you know, you just didn't talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. If you try to assert yourself in any way, it's like, do as you're told, right, mm-hmm. Dr. McGivens? right and then and any sign of weakness too is like you know uh, something we should touch on at some point in this conversation too diana is about the role of spirituality which is really a a big part of the black community and Mm -hmm. any signs of weakness or not following through or anything is is seen like rebellion against god or like not doing enough or like you're being cursed and and so um, I may be straying from the topic here, but I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned that. But coming back to it, I think for me, and I'll pass it over to Dr. McGivens, in, in self-care is the ability to say no and thank you mm-hmm. and establish healthy boundaries for yourself, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. in doing so, it's an investment. Dr. McGivens? Dr. Nichols, oh my goodness. First of all, thank you for saying the no thing, which we know. Yeah. And people know, but guess what happens? they don't know how to say it nicely. Yeah. So they think saying no is mean and unkind and what would be yeah. Do you know the way you said no a while ago, You, the words you used are the most beautiful way I've ever heard. Normally, okay. <laughs> I normally give people suggestions. And when I tell them how to say it, they say, wow, that really sounds good. Can, I, can you record that for me? But yours way exceeded anything I've ever said. Oh. I wish. We have a recording of this, right? Because I'm going to use those exact words one day. (laughs) And the truth is, one of the things that you are trying to do when you use such beautiful words to say no is you're trying to teach the people around you who look up to you, actually. You're not just saying no and cutting them off. You're trying to show them that you do care. You care about the fact that they thought of you. You care yeah. about the fact that they they are trying to honor you in a certain way by asking you to do something, but you want them to have what they need, but you are not at this time able. Do you realize that you're sending another message? You're saying you want to do it, you would love to do it, but you know you have limitations right now that will prevent you from giving your best to that task. That's teaching persons around you why no is important so you're not just saying no you're saying no with an explanation that why would i want to give anything but my best to this assignment i want to give you my best so please allow me the time i need to be in a position to give you my best and those are the things people will remember they're not going to remember that you said no they'll remember why you said no And I believe that we have to understand the ones who are the strong ones that people are looking up to, that we feel the pressure, they look up to us. That means we have influence in their lives. We have to understand that we have opportunities to teach, 
to guide. They see you, Dr. Nichols. Oh, she has a PsyD and big mm -hmm. professor and honors and whatnot and awards. Yeah, I, I Googled you. Awards. <laughs> <laughs> right? And then so they look at me and they say, oh, you know, you know, clinician, whatnot, whatever I do. Um, and they think we're successful. And then they believe that maybe what we're saying to them is something they should pay attention to. Yeah. We have a platform that we need to make good use of. And the minute we women who are stereotyped in that way take that stand, which is not popular, but then they, can, they watch us and we continue to thrive and we do well and we excel. Mm -hmm. What does that say? It says that we don't have to do everything to be strong. We don't have to do everything to feel secure. We're right. not afraid of your rejection. That's what the strength that we really need to show them is. And that's why that no is such a powerful thing because you say yes all the time, only if you're afraid that the persons you may say no to won't like you anymore, won't ask you anymore, won't want you to be around them anymore. But no, strong black women should be able to say no to prove our strength, which is I am secure in who I am. I don't need to act or perform or to, to go against my values to make you aware that I am strong. Yeah, very well said. Well said indeed, Dr. Karen. Um, I didn't mention this before, but for those listening, Dr. Karen is actually my personal therapist. And I'm bringing this up now because I have essentially become her parrot because everything she just said to you, I mentioned in a well-being workshop that I did on Monday. It was about boundary setting. And I used boundary setting as a tool for this particular workshop for people to, on how you can work on your well-being. A lot of the times in the field that I work in, in well-being and health, um, people tell you to work through stress by just breathing through it or all the other taboo things you can think of, not taboo, but um, cliche things you can think of, yoga, breathing through it. And I was telling the people that were listening to my presentation that boundary setting is probably one of the healthiest and most necessary things you can do for yourself. And where did I get that from? Dr. Karen, <laughs> because I have been working on boundary setting and it is honestly really hard. And one of the things that came up on Monday in particular was that it's easy to set boundaries sometimes at work. It's easy to set them with strangers, but with loved ones, it can be particularly hard. And one of the people in the session mentioned, he's like, I can do this all the day, all the time. I can do this with whoever, but with my mom, I'm a sucker for my mom. And I said, you are preaching to the choir. I too cannot set boundaries with my mom. I will be 28 on Sunday and I cannot set boundaries with my mom. I'm working on it. I'm working on it, but it is hard. Um, with that being said, the holidays are around the corner and we're going to be around family members. For those of us who are doing the work and going to therapy and working on ourselves, you are able to use the tools and you know to set boundaries and things like that. But we're going to be around people who aren't always doing the work and might want to pull us into old things or bring us out of our newfound character. What tips do either of you have for working on setting those boundaries and particularly when you're around people like for the holidays or with big family gatherings, be it Mother's Day, whatever, um, setting those boundaries and being firm, but being nice. Mm, yes. 
That's a good one. And, um, Dr. McGinn, if you, if you allow me, if I can comment, is that, go ahead. Can I go ahead? Of course. <laughs> Remember, you're the one who knows exactly how to say the absolute. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what you were talking, uh, Diana, I thought, you know, who's the, you know, the hardest thing to do in setting boundaries is setting boundaries with yourself. Mm. Mm. I am not going to have more than one cookie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am going to get up and, you know, take care of this task list. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am going to exercise and get my body moving because it helped me to feel well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I think we, what if it's hard to set those boundaries and, mm. and even for ourselves. And when, when it's difficult to do it for ourselves, I imagine it could be even difficult to do it with others. Mm. So um, uh, that being said, um, moving towards the question, and I, I, um, and I think I probably answered both. How do we set boundaries for ourselves? How do we follow through with what um, we hope and want for ourselves, being our authentic or being our best self? How do we initiate that? And I think that's also an important point to talk about as we move into the new year. Often we are just on autopilot and we are going, 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 and we mm. don't take time to stop, to be mindful, to check in with ourselves. How am I feeling about me as a woman? What am I most proud of? What can I, what, what where can I grow, mm. you know? And um, as the holidays are approaching and we're talking about family and how to set boundaries with family, um, I think um, one of the things that, that potentially come up, I think often is, again, ability to say no, to establish that line of how to, 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 to express your thoughts in a way with, and having at the same time the fear that you may offend or hurt a family member. So that's a big thing that often often comes up with my work with students. Like I, I care about my mom, my sister, my brother. I don't want them to be upset with me. How can I say this? Or oh, it often leads to an argument and I don't get to say what I want to say. Hmm. And um, my tip for that is to for the for the um write an email, write a text, hmm. get some distance between yourself and that person by communicating this how you feel using your I statement. That's the other tip. So you're using that I statement, speaking to what you feel, asking for the space that you need, sending it off to them in a text or an email or uh, whatever message that, you know, ahead of time of when you meet. So for example, most college students going home from now on break, like I do not just want to go home, be decorating or have everyone in my face. I need some downtime. Mm -hmm. So what I've suggested is send that ahead of time. Send mm -hmm. that text, send that email, mom, dad, when I come, I need two days just to decompress, mm -hmm. get some time in my room. I don't feel like talking versus going home, knowing that everybody's going to want a piece of you, right? And then becoming frustrated or annoyed and then others get hurt or offended. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Dr. Givens? Yeah, you yeah. know, I... I would not have even thought of that, sending the, the text or email ahead. What I thought of was very similar, but not so much with, you know, prior, you know, preparation. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it's harder when you're already in the situation. And right. that's what I think people fear actually showing up for the event knowing they can't do some of the things that people expect of them, but don't, they don't know how to break it to persons who are already there with expectations. So that's why that text and email ahead is such a, 
a great idea. What I mm -hmm. also thought would be let people know, don't ask anybody what you can do, what should you do, what can you bring. Mm -hmm. You tell them. Yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to coming. I'll be able to stay for two hours. Yeah. I am going to be able to bring one dish. You're yeah. not even making them, giving them the opportunity to start drawing on you. Mm -hmm. You're essentially letting them know these are the conditions under which I will be there this year. And the most important thing, do it all with a smile and a nod. Things will happen. You will get upset. But guess what? Find another outlet for the upset you feel. Don't do it in that situation. Because that lessens the impact of what you're trying to do. You're trying to show persons that you love yourself enough not to just go along with everything, run yourself ragged, and then quarrel with everybody because you hated doing it in the first place. You're trying to show them that you love yourself enough to, to let them know what you can handle, do what you can handle. If persons don't appreciate that, all you need to do is nod and smile and say, and say I'm so sorry about that and leave early if necessary. And then go find your therapist or your best friend or somebody else and tell them exactly how annoyed you were when you went and everybody behaved so badly, but you did not lose your composure in that setting. What everybody will remember is that you very graciously said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not going to be able to stay as long. Leave them a little bit confused. I don't understand. She didn't do everything I said and she didn't even get mad. But you're mad, but they don't need to see that part of you which has lost control because you're not really coping or you weren't adequately prepared for that setting so that's what i would say it's very important manage your response and that's what that telling them no in a very nice way is about because it undermines the message if you don't manage your response and don't let people don't give them the chance to say what they want from you and make it awkward when you tell them no i can't you just tell them this is what i'm going to be able to be doing I'll be able to participate in this event. I'll be able to give one dish to this, this dinner. I'll be able to stay for two hours. So everybody already knew it's not personal. This is where I am at at the moment. That's what I can do. Mm -hmm. and, and Dr. Gibbons, great point. And when you're um, sharing that, um, being able um, to um, uh, work through difficult emotions that you feel with composure, um I, I thought about just a dinner table and the conversation comes up so whether or not you belong let's say you know like political something come up mm. a political conversation a conversation that goes against what you value or believe a lot of mm -hmm. our students um share the experience of having um been away from home and acquiring different beliefs or values and then finding that strongly contradicting with their family values. I think mm -hmm. one way to get out of conversations, which might be helpful for our listeners tonight, is being able to say, you know, this conversation makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that we talk about something else? And if the answer is no, you know, great. 
you can say, you know, since it's uncomfortable, I'm going to go sit in the living room or I'm going to go up to my room mm-hmm. um, and, and letting that proceed or, you know, so asking for the space that you need, right. yeah. you know, such a valuable thing to do. So mm-hmm. that's another tip that I'll offer, Diana. Okay. I love that tip as well. And everything that y'all have been talking about, um, while you were speaking, both of you kind of touched on um, expectations and managing those expectations. And um, when we're talking about boundary setting, being afraid that people weren't going to care about you anymore and things like that. But particularly with that, uh, that managing expectations piece, it kind of got me thinking about what you mentioned earlier, Dr. Kristen, about um, spirituality and religion and how that kind of plays a big part in our community. And then I want to take that kind of a step further and uh, kind of talk about how religion plays such a big part in how we manage mental health. I know growing up, I grew and grew up in a very um, religious household in the sense that we prayed through everything. Everything can be fixed with prayer, which I would never in my life denounce the power that prayer holds. Mm -hmm. But as an adult, I also sought therapy Mm -hmm. because it wasn't enough, despite the fact that that's how I was raised. And a lot of the things I even talked about in therapy are managing the expectations of my family. And those, a lot of those expectations stem from religion. Um, Dr. Kristen, you kind of touched on when you go to college, you learn different values. As an adult, I'm learning that I value a lot of things that are uh, contrary to what I grew up believing and learning and knowing. And I'm working through that. Um, that being said, what, uh, kind of what thoughts do you all have on that, that intersection between religion and spirituality and mental health and as black women, how we can manage both praying and seeking therapy? Well, I'm going to just say one of the things I like to do when I have a new client is to find out what role does spirituality play in your life? Because Uh if people may not necessarily say I'm a Christian, but spirituality is a big deal for a lot of people. And it helps them to process some of the difficult things they have to go through. So once I have an understanding of what role spirituality plays, then it gives me another way of showing them a a resource, a a source of relief, release, um, comfort. When they do have to go through whatever it is that's difficult, we're here talking about how how do we manage our mental health despite what other people's view of us is expectations of us are the the thing is sometimes it doesn't i mean not sometimes most of the time it doesn't go well when you're trying to move from functioning a certain way that everybody is expecting you to that is not really good for you long term to another way, which is more is better for you, but some people are getting no's and they're they're annoyed. You need to have somewhere that you can find peace. If the person that I'm working with has spirituality as a component, we can talk about okay, what does the scripture say? What would you normally do to find that peace despite what's going on, the turmoil in your family? You're now trying to show them another side of you, a side that wants to be well, but they're not taking it well. How does that make you feel? Is that very, very difficult? Do you feel 
sad and and rejected because they're not accepting of that what can you do do you have a, a spiritual um discipline that you would normally draw on is it journaling is it reading scripture is it praying whatever it is that you would normally have used in your life in other situations that's where you will probably gain the strength you need to persevere until you see the change that's coming it's very i'm glad you brought that up diana and dr nichols you brought it up before as well because in the black community both here in north america and in the caribbean where we're from spirituality is a big deal and people want to have access to that kind of a conversation so we have to let them know hey if this is something that you need to talk through with us to see can this be helpful then let's do that then i'm glad you mentioned that despite growing up in a religious household you needed therapy as well because the truth is there's a lot of science as dr nichols will tell you as a researcher there's a lot of science behind the benefit of counseling techniques the theories they're well proven they work and not because you're a christian or you a person of faith doesn't mean that you don't need that additional way of of being helped it doesn't negate god's value or or power it's yeah. just like i am diabetic i need to go to a doctor who can prescribe the right meds for me and we have to keep sending that message to people and help them to understand this is just another part of your well-being that prayer alone may not be enough to get you to a place of wellness mm -hmm. i i just want to point the excellent points excellent points dr mcgiven thank you and i wanted to point out a statistic that's in support in what, of what we are seeing here today that 87 percent right of uh uh black americans claim religious affiliation that is eight in ten think that religion is important in their lives and only 24 percent of clinical and counseling psychologists express a personal belief in god all right so there you already have like some barriers right mm -hmm. that can potentially impact the therapy process mm -hmm. um I, I don't know what you think dr mcgivens but i i think it's not a matter of choosing either or Mm -hmm. I rely on God or rely on therapy. It's possible to have both and incorporate both. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and researching, I know that's a question Diana has, the best therapist for you that can incorporate and be respectful of your uh, spiritual values. Mm -hmm. Because it can support resiliency and be a healthy way of coping. Mm -hmm. um, I think in terms of spirituality and religion, and just speaking again from my own personal experience, um, that sometimes... You know, it makes you uh, lose agency, autonomy, because you're praying for something to happen. And it's been with my experience with clients that, you know, that I, I why is God not answering my prayer? God is punishing me. Uh, why are things not changing? And and so I think that it, it's a two-edged sword. Sometimes it can work to, um, you know, create more distress. And so I try to uh, encourage clients to consider the a more uh, a healthier look at spirituality. I think sometimes, depending on parental upbringing, we tend to put, um, if you're a Christian, for example, um, put God in a parental role. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. 
And I think that's a, a, an experience that I have often working with Black clients. And so um, it takes some restructuring and rethinking of, uh, of your belief system to, 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 to kind of work through um, that conflict. Uh, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. And so, um, I, you know, Dr. McGillis, have you heard Faith, Faith Without Works is? Dead. Dead, right? <laughs> is what work is dead. So that's something when I work with clients who are spiritual, I'm like, okay, faith without works is dead. What can you do mm-hmm. to create agency for yourself? Mm-hmm. The Bible says that you just took faith without works is dead. So what can you do to support your well-being and mental health? Mm-hmm. What are you willing to do? Yes, mm-hmm. pray. Yes, do the practices that support you. And what are things within your control to do to bring about your well-being? Mm-hmm. And in fact, to add to that, the therapeutic approach that has gotten so much, uh, you know, affirmation in its in its its efficacy, cognitive behavioral therapy, as you would know, Dr. Nichols. You know, when mm-hmm. I'm teaching my students, I tell them, okay, that one, when in doubt, <laughs> when in doubt and you don't know what therapeutic <laughs> approach to use, try CBT because it works for so many different types of presenting issues. Not every single one, but almost every single one. And guess what? People who have some kind of spirituality and if their faith is based in the Bible mm-hmm. tend benefit from going back what does the bible say about that cognitive behavioral therapy is all about aligning your mind your thinking with what you believe mm-hmm. which will affect in a positive way hopefully your behavior and hopefully you'll see a turnaround in your situation when i was teaching the happiness course that i used to teach i changed my life by the way because i learned how to be a happy person despite my circumstances while i was teaching there was i i don't have the stats here but evidence proved that people who live in an incongruent life their belief system is x they live y cannot find happiness our job as we work with our clients is to find out what exactly do you believe Uh are you living according to that and if you are okay does your do your thoughts line up with what you believe if your thoughts don't then your actions won't and you certainly will not find fulfillment happiness all the things you're looking for that ties directly into people's faith that's why we need to know do you believe anything and what is it and is there something that we can draw on from that belief system that will support you on this journey Mm -hmm. well said very well said and this is all very reminiscent of our early sessions dr karen (laughs) um yeah managing that like you said living one way but having expectations in another place and not being happy Mm -hmm. i was just talking to a coworker earlier about how when i first started therapy how you uh basically just called me out instantly you're not happy (laughs) and i was like uh okay like sure yeah you're right i'm not and then but i came to you because honestly i acknowledged that but i didn't know what to do with that information i knew i wasn't happy but then how do you how do you work with that? How do you manage that living one way and having expectations in another place? It was a tough line to toe. And I'm mm-hmm. grateful that I found you and have been able to work through that. Mm-hmm. And I think also to that main point about, well, 
not the main point, but in reference to like our earlier sessions as well, you mentioned how for new clients, you have um, those intake forms. I very Mm -hmm. specifically remember answering that question on the intake form about like where religion played a role in my life. And I remember when I first read it, I was like, I don't get the relevance, but I obviously filled it out anyway. And I think that that did help us a great deal. And I think Mm -hmm. acknowledging the fact that like Dr. Kristen said that so many people in the black community, eight in 10, like she said, 87% of us um, acknowledge that religion is a big part of our lives. Mm -hmm. And that means that theoretically when searching for a therapist that we need therapists who, that's just another element that a therapist needs to understand about us. Specifically, I know there's a huge disparity when it comes to black clinicians, there are not a lot of black therapists and counselors. Mm-hmm. And then you compound that with women. I have you two in front of me right now, but um, I don't know really the stats on black women clinicians, but I know that there are not enough. Mm-hmm. There are not enough of you all to help mm-hmm. all of us that need it. Mm-hmm. Um, which kind of leaves us, some of us in a place where we have to turn to either outside sources or um telehealth. I know Dr. McGibbon and I, we meet on the computer. I, though I live in Athens now, I lived in Northwest Ohio when I first found, found you and you still were 45 minutes away from me. That is a huge barrier for Mm -hmm. a lot of people. So for a lot of us, you make the decision, yeah, I want to go to therapy. And then you start looking. How do you even find a black therapist? And you start, I literally Googled black therapist in my area. And I was fortunate enough that I'm a whiz with Google and found Dr. McGibbon, but it's hard. It is hard for us to find clinicians that are already up to speed with being black in America, being a woman. That is such a huge barrier. Do you two, I'm going to ask two questions in one and I think it will all get covered. But first and foremost, for those people who aren't fortunate enough to find black, either male or female therapists, um, for the clinicians who will encounter them. Do you have any tips or advice to help your non-POC or people of color um, colleagues deal with or get a better understanding of um, how to deal with their Black patients? Sure. So what I w- would like to just uh, say as, as, as a premise or uh, important point is that help versus no help, right? So getting help is better than not addressing it and having no help at all. So within your area, if it was available to you, depending on, I don't know, limitations with insurance or, you know, commute, things like that, you know, and you have to work with a white therapist, there are things that you can do or research about this therapist or even ask your therapist to see if it's a, a good fit for you. And so um, even and with now with the tele, teletherapy coming more of a, a, a way of doing practice now, given COVID, um, th- there's much more opportunity, right, um, Dr. Gibbons, would you agree, than before in terms of being able to work with a therapist? Oh, yes. So you could work with someone who is in New York. One mm-hmm. that person is licensed to practice in Ohio, of course. Right. So there mm-hmm. are some restrictions, but um, getting help versus no help. Please get help if you mm-hmm. need help, and don't be limited by um, not being able to work with another person of color. Mm-hmm. Um, can that help the therapeutic alignment and process and ease in which you feel um, comfortable in therapy? Yes. And it is also possible to create that space with a, a white clinician. 
Mm-hmm. So things that um um that at Counseling Psychological Services, which I'm part of the staff there here at Ohio University, um, our, we get training and um, uh, on different um, populations and how to work with different populations. And as psychologists and mental health providers, we are required to have continuing educational credits um, to be able to do this work. And so for that, you know, growth is always there, but it still may not, you know, there's a touch there's just mm-hmm. something, right? Mm-hmm. We know there's <laughs> folk. You know, there's just mm-hmm. something about being with your people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to appreciate that as well, but just highlight that getting help is important. So some of the things when you know, I, I recently did a talk with some of the psych, white psychologists on how to work with um, black clients. And so some of the things that um, points that we can kind of drove home is um, addressing racial differences in therapy and not at the beginning in the first intake up in the first appointment like oh we are different and in a stoic kind of rigid way no mm-hmm. you, you want to be able to address that authentically right and it may not only just be in the first session but in in, in, in continuing sessions and don't assume homogeneity like you look this myself and dr game we I'm black, I identify as Afro-Caribbean, I am not African-American. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's such an important thing for um, white therapists to appreciate is how uh, um, the wide range of experiences mm-hmm. and, and cultural variables that, that exist within the black community. Mm-hmm. And we, talk, we talk, um, talked and touched on spiritual beliefs and practices, how important that is. So that's something else I would highlight to a white clinician um, and also joining with the client. Like I said, you know, we just have a, a way of being that's relaxed. And so it is important to kind of create that space in therapy, um, relating with the client, maybe sharing, like we, myself and Dr. Gibbons, shared personal experiences that kind of really makes the space feel genuine and authentic. And that's mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. And so working with the client and not, um, and seeing the client as a person, and you want to do that in any therapeutic relationship, but especially when working with someone who is not of the same culture with you, these things become more important. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, Dr. McGibbons? You said almost everything I wanted to say, and I'm going to now explain. You know why, Dr. McGibbons? Because we're both smart, wonderful, well-seen, <laughs> black women, all right? Okay. <laughs> Let me get an amen. Thank you. Amen. Amen. <laughs> So one of the things I'm so glad I'm able to teach the multicultural counseling course in our program. And because of that, I have had to become more and more educated and aware of what are the issues when you are when you're doing work like this across cultures. The most important thing to note is that Dr. Nichols and I are from the Caribbean, but there are similarities in our culture and their differences. Both you and I, Diana, are black women, but there are similarities in our cultures and their differences. Anybody, any two people. Diana, you and I have talked a lot about family culture. Do you realize how powerful family culture is? Yes. (laughs) Yes. So despite your race, Despite your age bracket, your family culture is also another huge influence in who you are. And if the client going into therapy and the counselor who's working with clients from all over 
understands that those cultures that you believe you're perceiving in front of you are not accurate. It cannot be. You cannot possibly know all the nuances of anyone in particular that you're working with as a clinician because they haven't told you about their family culture yet. Yes, they're Black. Yes, they grew up in Northwest Ohio. But what was your family like? How did they interact? My husband and I, by the way, are from the same country. You know, Jamaica is not that big. But I can tell you, our family cultures are distinctly different. He was raised a certain way. I was raised a certain way. And we've had to try and understand what does that mean? How does it you know, contribute to the person that we became. And that's what happens in every single household with every single individual. All of us are an amalgamation of various cultures. So clinicians who are informed will always enter therapy with an assumption that they do not know what they need to know about the person who is sitting in front of them, whether the race is the same, the gender is the same. And I tell my students, when in doubt, ask questions. So if Dr. Nichols came into my counseling room and I met her and I heard her accent, I would say, wow, which island are you from? Tell me about it. But it would be wrong of me to assume that because she's from Grenada and I'm from Jamaica, well, there's so many similarities and, hey, remember this? And assume, assume, assume. No, I don't know about her family culture yet. I don't know about how she was raised. I don't know how she, what she was taught in school. I don't know what she has embraced as an adult person who is independent thinking and decides this is what my life will look like. And I need to find out by asking questions. So I'm going to say to anyone who is looking for someone who has similar cultural qualities as they do, person of color, maybe, maybe not, maybe same gender, maybe, maybe not, get as close to what you think will be a good match, but always use that first session to decide what your comfort level is. I've been in therapy and I can tell you, I can't, I couldn't do therapy with just anyone. I'm just very fortunate that the person I worked with was somebody who I really connected well with. If I didn't, I shouldn't continue. I tell my clients when they start with me, at the end of this time, you can decide if you feel like I am a good person for you to work with. Even if we're the same color, even if we're the same gender, you have to know who you're comfortable with. I'm very fortunate to have persons who are not black women who I work with now in a country that I did not grow up with. But because I've respected them for who they are, we are able to still connect and still do good work. So I would say to reinforce what Dr. Nichols said, if you need help, get help. If the person that you test, try out the first time isn't a good fit, keep looking. There are lots of people, maybe not lots that fit the criteria you thought. You may end up going to someone who you thought had similar qualities as you did, but they're not a good fit for you. Keep that open mind. The most important thing is a therapeutic alliance. Right, Dr. Nichols? If that's not established, yeah. no matter what the color is, what the race is, that's not a good fit for you. I definitely agree with that. Agreed. Okay. So 
I think we have touched on some amazing things. Can you all still hear me? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was worried there for a second. I got a phone call in between here and I was like, oh no, we're gone. <laughs> but anyway, so back to what you were both saying. Um, I just want to echo back what you said. Um, if you need help, get help and keep trying. If you don't have success the first go around, I think that's discouraging to a lot of people. You between the perceived barriers of finding clinicians that look like you, I think sometimes people start therapy and after the first session, they're like, nope, wasn't for me. Um, I had this experience with my own little sister recently. She started therapy and she didn't like her therapist. I don't think she went back. She started and then didn't like how the situation was set up. I don't, I don't know exactly what the issue was, but she didn't try again. And I just want to encourage everyone to try again, that therapy is not one size fits all. And kind of like Dr. McGibbon and Dr. Knuckles both said, um, it doesn't always matter about race and gender because you do have to get to know them and they have to get to know you and family culture is a huge component. Um, yeah, I think you both answered very well. I think one, I got two last points that I wanna touch on before I let you both go. Um, for anyone who does decide to take the leap and they want to do therapy, but they're interested in doing telehealth. Do you have any tips for navigating doing telehealth, like doing therapy sessions online? Doesn't have to be anything long, just quick tips or anything that you've noticed that could potentially be helpful if a client knew coming into that situation. Well, I'll start because I've been doing this for so long and some of my clients hesitated because of this distance and obviously we would prefer to be in person but i i keep reminding them think about just how beneficial it is to be able to sit down sit i mean i have clients that are in their beds with the pillow hugging the pillow and they're comfortable they feel secure there and they can just be opening up to me about their lives privately nobody has to know they're even seeing a therapist at whatever time sometimes late at night and or even early in the morning before they go to work. Just think about how you can benefit from getting that kind of very convenient help in the comfort of your own home. Some, some of my clients meet with me in their car because people are in their house and they're not going to have the privacy they like, but they can go in their car and they do it and it works. They're in the parking lot, AC's on, and they're talking to me and having a meaningful session. So I would say open your mind to the possibility that once the uh, technology is working, and usually we just have to try a couple of times and then it will work, you can benefit so tremendously. More regularity of sessions, convenience of no commute, um, just knowing that you may take a trip to, an, to a vacation, I've had clients who go on vacation and are still able to keep their regular um, times with me because they, are, they have access to the internet while they're there. So just be open to the possibility that yes, it's not the traditional way, but your privacy is a lot more secure in that setting and your comfort level much, much greater than you could have had in, in an office. I, I totally agree. 
And uh, I think what I can add to that is, um, and I know the audience is uh, OU students um, fans for this uh, blog or of the listeners. And so um, it will be very responsible of me to share that counseling and psychological services at Ohio University does have telehealth therapy as um, to offer to students. This service is free to you and included. So it's at no extra cost. And so you can visit um, Counseling Psychological Services at Ohio University, the website, and um, go through the staff page, read all the bios. Mine is also there and included. Read the bios of the people there and see you know, who seems to fit for you. And then you can reach out to schedule an appointment by calling 740-593-1616. And it's that easy. If there's, you go to the website and you're like, Mm-mm, no, 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 not for you. And then, so go to Psychology Today. Um, they have a wealth of um, uh, extensive, a <laughs> very extensive listing of therapists. And you can go through that list and look um, for a therapist um, that provides telehealth services. You want to consider things like insurance um, and, and, and look at the cost. And so knowing what your insurance that you do have is before you engage for services so you can be able to offer that information is helpful. Um, you want to say that you're a student. Maybe there's a price for students. Um, what else? Um, and uh, it's just not a one-way track. So you you are shopping around. This person is providing a service to you. So you get to also ask questions to a potential therapist on their views and how do they change and what what is the therapeutic or uh, techniques that they use or orientation like Dr. McGivens talked about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So you get to interview this person as well to see if it's a good fit for you. So those will be my tips, Diana. I think those are great tips and I really appreciate you uh, putting those resources in there. Um, Psychology Today actually is how I found Dr. McGibbon. It started off on Google, but Google took me to Psychology (laughs) Today. So that actually is a (laughs) wonderful resource. And I'll make sure um, in this little podcast world, there are descriptions of each episode and I'll make sure to put the information for counseling and psychological services here at the university um, in the description as well as Psychology Today. So people can go to the show notes and look and kind of just click on them and go to them and hopefully that can help someone. So before we close out, there's a question that going forward that I wanna ask all of my guests. Um, Something that's really important to me that I kind of try to live by and hopefully one day we're manifesting, I can start a nonprofit under the same title. It's be who you needed. Something I care about and probably for various reasons, the reason that I do the work that I do now is because I wanna be the person that I needed when I was a kid. Um, it sounds corny and cliche, but it is something that I really value. Um, my connection with the black girls here on campus and just people that I meet in general, that's just something that I care about. So I wanna ask both of you as grown black women, is there anything that you would tell your younger black girl self or a black girl listening now? What is something that you needed to hear that you wanna say now? Hmm. I would I would want to start. It's it's been the last segment of my life that I've really understood who I was, the value and worth that I had. I didn't I didn't grow up with that. That was not what I how I perceived myself. I I perceived myself as not good enough, broken, middle child syndrome issues, insecure, 
Um, I personally needed a lot of therapy. Um, I have benefited from mental health services and just even doing my own studies. Studying has helped me to understand myself and how I impact the world and I can impact the world. This is the best phase of my life. And it's because I did the work and I understood myself well enough to rise above my own personal mental images of myself that were negative. Um, and, you know, you, I had enough of them, much less to add, add to them that I am a minority and people may perceive me a certain way. I'm just glad that I went through all of that to be here today because I don't think there's anything anybody could ever tell me that would allow me to believe that I was less than anybody else at this stage of my life. It would have been nice to have reached here earlier, but I also don't have regrets. I do believe that everything that I experienced in life had value and it contributed to where I am today. So I would say to those who are struggling and on their journey, don't devalue or despise the journey and the difficulties. They do contribute to the growth, the character formation, the impact. I believe, Diana, based on the feedback I've gotten from you, that you see me as strong. And I probably am. And the reason is because I have enough memories of having to overcome difficult things that I know I can again. And that's the strength that I have. It's not because I don't cry, I cry and I struggle. But I know that I can get past things that are hard because I've watched myself do it before. So that's what I would say to anyone who's listening. Just don't give up. If I was to give up when I really wanted to, I wouldn't have even, I don't even know. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> can I just say ditto? Same. Um, that is exactly true. I, you know, um, Diana shared earlier um, in my introduction that um, I am starting my private practice and the name of the practice is Resilience in Becoming. And that's just speaking exactly to what you just described, um, Dr. McGibbons, the resilience, the working through to respect the journey, right? And I think I'll tell my younger self, it'll be okay that you can survive disappointment, that um, let downs, breakups, heartache, all that, that you will continue to exist, that um, doing well doesn't mean that it's easy sailing or, you know, like you get through everything with ease, that life comes with challenges. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I would tell my younger self to have taken pause to, 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 to see what I needed, to ask for help and not feel that I had to keep going even when I didn't feel like that. It's okay to stop. It's okay to take a break. It's okay to say I can't today. Um, and so, you know, I'm a worker bee. I push, push, and I'm very driven. And <laughs> I, I still have to monitor that and manage that. I was sharing that with Diana before the call today. Mm -hmm. And so um, that I'm good enough. Um, my worth is not tied into my ability to perform. And um, yeah, I would, I would, I would say that. And 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 there is value. I don't understand that there is value in working through, working mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. life's difficulties. Mm -hmm. 
I love that. And I hope it's not terrible to say and not unprofessional, but I love you both. This has been literally exactly what I needed. And I hope that when people hear this, that it resonates with them the same way it's resonating with me. These are all things that at 27, almost 28, that I'm learning and hearing. And it's good to hear even now that I'm not my job. That that my worth is not tied to my performance. That I'm good enough exactly how I am. It's uh, beautiful. Y'all are amazing. <laughs> and I just want to, as we close out, I just want to say thank you both so much for joining me for this very first episode. Hopefully it's not as rough as I think it might be because I think you both were amazing. So I want to say thank you to both of you. And also, um, I just want to close out by saying, Whoever needs to hear this, that black girl, you are beautiful. Black girl, you are talented. Black girl, your opinion matters and is valid. And black girl, you are loved. Thank you guys for listening. And thank you both for joining. Thank you. Thank you.